It's Wednesday night, which means you know you know what it means. We're going deep. So Brandon Angelo, Mount Waldman, we're here to talk about some topics mostly related to the NFL draft, but we got some other things too that we'll talk a little bit about. Um, you know, ranging from you know Mike Vrabel and Bill Belichick. What does that look like moving forward? How about quarterbacks who maybe can't stay healthy during their career and get beaten up? What are our thoughts on you know their potential to 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 kind of overcome that? And then you know who might be the safest prospect in this class, at least as a ball carrier? And then how about some of these other guys who like there was a guy that maybe we were going to be talking about a lot last year, and then he got hurt and stuck around. And then a guy who seemingly came out of nowhere for some people, and he's been the the hype, the buzz. He's been like the roller coaster guy. So we're going to think every class yeah. has one of those, and then he's definitely it. Yeah. Sure. So with that in mind, let's start off talking a little bit about, you know, obviously we had the – the firings and the coaching changes going on this week. Mike Vrabel gets the can. Bill Belichick, we don't, maybe I haven't, maybe I missed something, but we don't know anything yet other than him sure. having some self-awareness to say, yeah, I'm willing yeah. not to be the GM anymore. Um, so what do you think of these two guys moving forward, Brandon? I think it's interesting because I, they're going different directions, obviously. Um, I was shocked to see Vrabel fired. I, I I just don't I don't understand how you're gonna get a better candidate. Yeah. Um, especially with the other attractive jobs out there, right? Like guys like you know Ben Johnson, he's a coaching candidate in the cycle. What's gonna lead you to choose Tennessee? Right? You have a, in my opinion, a so so rookie quarterback. You don't have any real young weapons. Right, Traylon Burks' injury ship has kind of sailed. Your best player on offense is probably Tajay Spears, which is good and bad, right? You right. and I both love Spears, but if you're trying to build, you know, a playoff contender, Tajay's your best weapon isn't great. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting part of what they're doing. And um, I don't know what direction they're going to go in. now. Vrabel, I think, is gonna. I think is going to take the job in New England. I think that's kind of the most natural transition. Um, or I can see him in Atlanta. Um, Belichick, on the other hand, I think either one or two things happens. He, he goes to a place like the Los Angeles Chargers, and they give him kind of a head coach GM role, or he's just in a front office. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of where his career is trending. Because really, like, let's say he goes to, you know, he might be left right? And they have a losing season. Like, where do you go from there? Right? Um, and, like, Arthur, <laughs> he's, he's, his patience has got to wear thin, right? Um, so I think that's an interesting part of Belichick is I think he's looking more into the front office role I think that's where his career is trending. What do you think about those two in particular? Well, it's funny because, you know, I had a conversation with Adam Harstead, who we do our film and theory show on Thursdays. And last week, Adam brought up, he goes, look, if we're going to talk about, let's talk about Bill Belichick's legacy for a minute. And I thought he made some interesting points because he was like, first of all, you know, there's there there could be an argument that says that the GM part of what he's done has passed him by. Like the that the New England yeah. Patriots were ahead of the game with drafting and trading back and doing all trading down and doing all the things that they did, but everybody caught up to that and the the Bills haven't had much of an advantage on that end of the spectrum. Now as a coach, he thought you know one of his thoughts was like, look, I think he might be one of the, even though he's had a bad couple of years without Brady and the narrative is that oh Brady's gone, he's been exposed. You know, there's a couple of points that we made to that. One for me was like, not everybody is great at everything, even when they're great. You know, like they have weaknesses. And so, yes, he can't draft a non-slot receiver to save his life. Um, we've known this about him. That's fine. But offensively, you know, Adam brought up a great point and said, you know, 
when Tom Brady got drafted in the sixth round as an afterthought, and then it turned out that they needed him, and he started to, and he looked good. You know, Bill Belichick had a big hand in Brady's development from the standpoint of the type of offense that he used. 100%. That was that kept Brady from having to be the guy until key moments. Like they didn't lean all the way on him. They had guys like Antoine Smith and Corey Dillon, yeah. and you, you know, and ran the ball well. And then, as he, and then he was one of the first to really import the spread offense from the college game and be one of the early adapters, you know, in terms of what he was doing. So maybe he's not an innovator on the offensive side of the ball, but he certainly. You know, he certainly had his place. If it weren't for Belichick, Brady might not have been able to become what he became. Um, right. And then Brady said, okay, coach, we'll take it from here. You know, once he got to that point and then it was, you know, then it was completely different. So when I look at that, I, I kind of would. And then when I hear about, you know, Kevin Clark on, um, I think it was Kevin Clark on the ringer, um, a couple of years ago had Dante Scarnecchi on and said, Hey, you know, how do you guys, how do you guys get involved in the draft process? And he's like, well, Bill, after the playoffs or after the season's over, whenever it is usually in January for us, he gives us a list of guys he wants us to watch that the scouts have already watched. And then we give our take on it and we point out things that maybe they didn't see. And we kind of give our view of what we thought of those players and I'm like, okay, that sounds cool on the surface, but then as kind of a process management guy, I'm listening to this and going, why aren't they like getting on the same page beforehand and not have these guys do this last second? Like they should be telling the scouts what they want and what they're looking for right. back in like basically in January for next June. Or, you know, so that they start Absolutely. watching yeah. for the 2025 class, you know, right. and doing that. And that way they're not just like, oh, throw out whatever the scouts were saying and not showing them what they want, you know. And it, obviously it's not working great with some positions either. So, you know, just because coaches are good at coaching doesn't mean they're good at scouting. And and so there there's some low-hanging fruit there that I think could be part of it is is. Belichick trusted some of his guys maybe in a way that just shows you his blind spots as maybe like a manager of certain processes. Just because you yeah. know football doesn't mean you know how to manage certain aspects of of it. Right, exactly. I think, too, with how the game is evolving, I think catching up to that evolution has been kind of hard for Bill. Yeah. Right, especially with having... Like you, you, made, you made a good point of he, he hasn't been able to draft a non-slot receiver, right? Exactly. The game is full of now multi-position three-level winners. The Patriots have never had this. Yeah. The closest thing they've had to a multi-position three-level winner was Rob Gronkowski. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. You you had. Randy Moss, the apex of his career, right? And he was great with Tom Brady, but... You didn't draft Bill, him. <laughs> yeah, Bill was never able to draft that archetype of player that is now taking over the NFL. So that's kind of the issue is, is he able to evolve with that current evolution? And I don't have the answer to that. I think that's an interesting one because if he wants to... Can, he knew his legacy of success. That's going to be a huge proponent because the game is changing, the game's evolving, um, but he hasn't shown the ability to do so with it. Yeah, and look, defensively, he's still on top of his game, and 100%. you know he just needs the personnel to be healthy and have decent personnel. Right. And he he's good at he was always great at that. That's how he got into the league, you know, and really built his his resume. Now. From the offensive standpoint, yeah, I think it could help him to have somebody else buying the groceries. I think that he, and he doesn't really need to do that. I think that he can, the, the, the issue to me about him being a GM or a manager is you watch what happened with Mac Jones and whether you like Mac Jones or not, it's hard to get around the argument that they screwed him in his first year or in year two by not having an offensive coordinator. Um, right. you know, an experienced oh, offensive coordinator to, if you're going to change a 
you, you had to because, you know, Josh McDaniel took the job in, in Vegas. Fine. If you're going to do that, why are you going to go with the guy who has no experience in that realm when you have a young quarterback? That's hard to, it's hard to look around the argument and say, well, Mac Jones just wasn't good enough. No, you, you put a glaring thing in place. So I think as a, a manager from that standpoint, that was a flawed thing to do. Um, so I, if I were a team and had the opportunity to get them, though, and take the chance, I'd do it. And I think, you know, you mentioned Atlanta as an opportunity. I think there's something there because they have a strong run game. They already have strong pieces offensively in place. 100%. It's just a matter of getting him to getting them to sign off on a good coordinator and yeah that's gonna be the yeah exactly i think that's the, to me the big one like you know being able for for build a delegate yeah i think that's really important for his next stop is he has to be able to delegate yeah um because you know you might have like you said that mac jones situation where you don't really have an identity you're just kind of calling you're just calling in offense yeah not gonna work so he has to definitely be able to delegate and have someone in place where he, they can do a pretty, like pretty good job with whatever pieces they have. Because I think he's in it, you know, my opinion, go somewhere that's well established. Yeah, right? I, I think that's a big. Yeah, I think it is. And and was as far as the Rabel goes, it. I agree. It's absolutely batshit crazy that the that the Tennessee Titans parted with him. But you kind of could see this was coming just with Rand Carthon getting added in and the new owners and the ownership. And it just yeah. seemed like Vrabel's kind of taken the high road and biding his time and knew this was the last year. And that this was maybe their last year to go with whatever plan he wanted to go with to some extent, adding sure. Hopkins, you know, getting, you know, bringing back Tannehill for one more year. You know, they get the, the rookie, uh, another rookie quarterback, but, I mean, looking at this, Rabel has, it's a small market team. He's done such a good job with that small market team. And really, when I look at him, I think, okay, if Mike Tomlin were to leave, I think the Steelers would snatch that dude up in a heartbeat. I think the Patriots obviously are linked to him for good reasons and, and obvious reasons. I Atlanta would be another one that I... I you know, I mean, I could, yeah. you, like you said, I think that makes a good defense already that's getting yeah. better. And they have a running game. And Vrabel can piece yeah. some, some good work together with, with what the talents are there. He's not going to have any trouble finding a job. He's no, he's that no, guy no, no, that no. in 15 years we're going to be talking about him as a Hall of Fame coach, I think. 100%. I, I think he's, he's uh, yeah, I think he's a top, in my opinion, a top five head coach. Yeah. 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 I think that is a, you know, I, I don't think that's a hot take at all. I think he's, I think he's, he's good. Like he's very good in that role, and he commands a room and play play for the Titans have overperformed in every single season he's been head coach. They yeah. have never been the most talented team, but every like whenever I turn on a Tennessee Titans game, I always feel like they had a chance. Yep. Yep. Every game I turn on. Game. I don't care if Willis is back. Look what they do with Mike Willis against the Kansas City Chiefs in prime time yeah. at Arrowhead. Yeah. Like, incredible with your back receiver being, who is that? Chris Conley. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. But I think a dark spot. Philadelphia. Ooh. That would be, the, that'd if, be scary if, good. If, let's say, this coming Monday night, if Philly goes to Tampa, lays an egg. Yeah. What do you do with Nick Sirianni? Yeah. I mean, that's a Super Bowl roster. Yeah. Especially especially when you have guys like Javon Hargrave talking about the difference oh. between the work ethic or the coach, not the work ethic, but implying work ethic, the difference between how they practice later in the season, and how Sirianni, yeah. due to injuries that probably from previous years, that they kind of took it a little easier, but how their point, he Hargrave was kind of pointing to that and saying they play soft late in the season, you know, and whereas with the 49ers, he feels like you're working hard from wire to wire. And Vrabel, I think, is the type of guy 
that you would never worry about no. that. And if he were to give his guys some time off, I don't think anyone would be questioning him on that end. If he did, sure. it would it would be a downhill thing. But yeah, I love that 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 possibility. So with that in mind, um, let's talk about let's talk about a guy who you know on a national championship team, Blake Corum, running back who you you know you mentioned that you have some initial thoughts on him and his NFL transition and mentioned him as possibly the safest prospect in this class. Now, before you, before you give your take, I'm laughing because I look at Blake Corum and I don't know, you know, I've, I'm probably about three or four weeks away from really diving into running backs once again. Um, but if I'm right, I'm going to look this up real quick and you may see it. A quick look at my spreadsheet here. Let's see. I looked this up and yeah, my top guy, at least heading into this, Blake Corum's high on that list. I'll just put it that way. He's very, sure. he's in my top five easily sure. and was very impressed with his overall game. So I understand why you would look at him as possibly the safest guy in the class. Tell everybody why you feel that is. Yeah, I think a lot, like what the NFL's coming at the running back position is a lot of can you do your job well in tight spaces and open spaces? Right? And can you stay in the field for third downs if that's a big plus for them? But with a guy like Blake Corum, Tyrus Williams has kind of opened that door. Um, don't be the biggest, don't be the fastest, don't have to be the most athletic guy in the room, but do you have a good feel for the opening and closures of spaces? When I look at Blake Corum, he is head and shoulders above every back in the in this class when it comes to those two categories. And that's a huge plus in today's game. This was 10, 15 years ago. We probably wouldn't be talking much about a Blake Corum. Um, and that's been, and that's a really interesting thing is he's to me. Him and Audrey Esteem are two guys that I really like in that. Obviously, two very different physical figures, right? But Blake Corum plays a brand of football that's going to give him longevity in the NFL, right? Unless, you know, another injury happens or something along those lines. But we see it a lot with guys like, you know, Dave Montgomery, right? Guys who can stick around because they can play a specific role, right? Kyrie Williams is going to be around for time. And he's in that same mold, Blake Corum, of the guy who has such a great feel, and he's not going to lose you yards, right? He's not going to put you back and down in this. And that, in my opinion, is what the NFL is training towards the running back fishing. Guys who can play mistake-free football, um, that aren't necessarily home run hitters, but the guys who do hit home runs aren't negative yards guys. Look, look at the two guys in this class, you know, Gibbs is no Gibbs, A chain. Don't lose yards. Yeah. And those are two really smart runners. And that's what I think it's becoming. A lot of times, you know, we, we think of the really you know, the fast, the home run hitters. Now it's kind of that combination of, hey, can you make the smart play to get two yards and not lose two? Or, you know, can you get us three, four, five, and five? Don't care if you can hit the 25-plus yard runs, but Tyron Williams is about as small and as slow as you can get. <laughs> you can get but yet yeah, he's one of the most productive running backs Oh, and there's another guy who we could probably say that about. I've always joked was too short, too small, too slow. Not fairly quick, but had unbelievable vision and decision making. Playing for the Houston Texans, you know. Yeah, so and you know, I wasn't high on Kyron Williams. I was, you know, I looked at at Singletary as more the exception to the rule. And while I still believe that the offensive line and in LA has been unbelievable. Really you know, good. Williams, Williams has played well without a shadow of a doubt. And he is consistent and he's got an all around game. 
I would argue, I mean, I don't know, but I would argue that Corm's a more explosive guy than, than Williams is. And, I agree. and he's probably like the guy that I see him as his aspirational comparison is J.K. Dobbins. Like if he can, I don't know yeah. if he's as athletic as Dobbins, but he looks pretty darn close to me in some realms. He's not as fast. You know, I think uh, Dobbins has that explosion that uh, oh, yeah. when he yeah. was healthy, there was... Pretty injury Dobbins. Like at Ohio yeah. State, Dobbins was, you know, I, I had him kind of, you know, he was in my whole bowl plus. Yes. This is a, like he was that good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe if, if Dobbins is athletically that guy then maybe the guy that is closer in aspiration to Corum is another former Raven, Ray Rice. Because yeah. Ray Rice was in a, about, he was in that 5'8", 210 range, 205, 210 range, and then got a little bigger and certainly didn't have long speed. That yeah. was great, but he didn't lose yards. He yeah. was good between the tackles. He was good in the open field. He could do everything for you. So I love how you portray that with, you know, or characterize Corm and kind of profile his game. I think that's totally on point. And I love to see the your thought on the NFL doing this with backs because it, it makes fantasy people angry when they see slower backs doing yeah, well. Yeah, It's really interesting. Yeah. But I think we're, we're trending. It's funny because we're trending towards two realms, right? We're trending towards the slower, unathletic level backs being successful. Right? Yeah. And we're trending towards smaller receivers playing big roles. Yeah. And or receivers that didn't pass that, like super well, athletically playing big roles. Yeah. So we're really kind of diving into the two extremes. But I think those are more, I think it's being more normalized because one thing I think people and we'll talk about this probably at length in the offseason like what you would understand is the faster you play the faster you need to process the information out of you yes so if I play slower like if I am a Kyron Williams versus Anthony McFarlane yeah exactly great comparison Anthony McFarlane 4-4 guy similar height Williams, I can see the the changing picture in front of me much clearer because I can control my movements much better and much more efficiently because I can do things in succession while the picture is changing. If I have a super high top gear and have trouble slowing that picture down in my mind and with my eyes, then that picture never becomes clear. It's just a, it's just a guessing game. It's just a guesswork. That, that's fantastic analysis, and I want to play off of that because I would also add as kind of a corollary to that is that when you look at, say, Frank Gore as a good example sure. of a player who had Marlon Mack to compete with or Kenyon Drake to compete with and kept get, being the guy that they hoped they would have those young guys learn from mm -hmm. is that when you are a slower back, you actually have to work on skills to maximize what you do best, which is read the field and have your feet be super precise. So while part of it, I agree, is totally that they see the field, they see it faster because they move slower. They also never, they also see the field faster and move with more precision. And they're more daring to get tight to their blockers and press things to the point where They've yeah. got so much faith in their footwork to be efficient that they that they can go because you can watch. I I've used to have this up showing a break. Uh, uh, one I have showing a Frank Gore Anthony McFarland video where they're both running the same um, play and one loses yards and then the same week Frank Gore gets 15 on the first play, same play, same type of right. way it was defended in the gaps. Fine, but there's another one I showed with him in in Indianapolis where you see how deep he presses and how how much he baits defenders to get yardage in a way that Marlon Mack really wasn't used to doing because a lot of these quick backs or super fast backs um, like the McFarlands, 
they play oftentimes in gap schemes or or draw plays where there's not a lot of reading. It's just like hit that thing hard, set up just this one crease, bleed that crease for all it's worth with your speed. If you got to run over, run through your blocker a little bit, or you got to run, you, you know, you got to just put the pads in and get downhill, fine. Whereas with if you played in a zone scheme, you had to do the multiple choice. How do you, more the diagnostic skill is on you. And, and when you look at a guy, and then when you talk about a top athlete doing it when they enter the league, well, if you're Adrian Peterson when entering the league, where you were as strong as some of the linebackers that you're facing and faster than the cornerbacks that you're dealing with, you know, the fact that, and a physical freak that at age 33, you're still doing these jump cuts where you're jumping three yards into the line of scrimmage so that you can plant and make a lateral cut, which Kenyon Drake would try and do and get knocked on his ass for hitting his head on the backside of a blocker. I mean, I've seen it multiple times and no hyperbole that he would do that. But Peterson would get away with that. But he's a freak of nature. There are not many people who can do that. And it's also why Peterson's game kind of, it didn't change, but the game changed on him. And he wasn't as maybe desirable because of the offenses that, that folks were playing. Um, which is funny because now the offenses have changed to the point that with all these gap plays, he, I, I argue if I was going to like, I wouldn't do it because he health wise, you'd wonder, but if, if the, this had come around a couple years earlier, he might've still been a thousand yard rusher in his like mid thirties. And so the point being is, is that these guys who are slower and have to have more control with their footwork, um, as a result of that they are more confident in tight spaces and they're more technically sound. Right. And these young guys who, who have never had to be that technically sound aren't are forced to do so. And when you're starting at square one in the pro game, it's a, it's a very steep learning curve that most never overcome. A hundred percent. I think it's the, you know, you, you mentioned a great word precision. I, I think it's the ability to be precise, but also be very deliberate. Yes. Right? with your movements and, and understand like how to put things in succession and like i said understand the the unclear picture yeah it's like finishing the painting yeah. um and that's what a lot of that's the difference between being a league average back below league average back to being a potential pro bowl caliber rusher is being able to paint that unpainted picture very quickly yes um and that's really important but yeah i think quorum's in that in that mold and i think you know guys like there's this is an interesting class of that because you have kind of a pick your flavor you know you have your audrey christine's you have your Travion henderson's you have your braylon Helms. you have you have different guys right you know, will shipley's like you have different types of players but if if I was a betting man and said, hey, which is the one I think that's going to be in the league six, seven years from now, be having success, play for him. Um, it's for that reason alone. I think he can be what we all wanted. Clyde Edwards hoped there to be, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, I think Clyde was a very good college prospect. And I also think that his initial injury he got his rookie year is he was he was actually playing good ball. He was um, as a rookie there. I think that was during, during COVID times too. Um, he was playing good ball, and he looked every bit of a of starting caliber running back in the NFL. Then he then he had the lower limb injury, had to get some surgery done, and he has worked the same since then. But I think Corum could be who we thought. Solaire would be, and I think without injury, Solaire would be closer to the ceiling. Um, but yeah, Blake Corm, I think, is going to be a day, probably day two guy. I think that's pretty safe. Um, but I'm interested to see what backs get picked ahead of them. I don't think he's going to be the first one off the board. Yeah, I think we're going to have a fun time being able to talk about these running backs throughout. Yeah, the, we are throughout sure. the draft season. Now, now you talked about injury, and and listen, you know. One of the things we'll move to quarterback and apply this whole injury thing to it because, you know, I, I talked to Chad Ryder, the NFL.com 
you know, draft analyst who writes up all those draft reports you see on there. Not all the scouting reports, but just like the background information on all these prospects. You know, and he does his own scouting reports and things like that. He used to do scouting reports for CBS Sports Line way back in the day before Dane Brugler took that job. And then, you know, and but Chad, um, Chad and I were talking about, I, I asked him, did you watch Michael Penix on, on Monday? And he said, yeah. And he goes, and it was a perfect game really to watch that was unfortunate for him, but it's, it's going to be the game that I think a lot of evaluators will want to watch mm-hmm. because what you saw, it's more than just the, oh, you know, he had 70-30 balls all throughout college and he throws very well, and now Michigan made him 50-50 balls, and as a result of that, you know, it exposed what he can't do as a thrower. He goes, I'm, that aside, he said, whether you agree with that or not, because I was like, well, that's that's all fine and well, but I remember watching him in, at IU, and he looked pretty damn awesome at IU, and Chad was like, I totally agree. Totally agree that yeah. he, he looked fantastic at IU, and I talked to a guy there, you know, as a fr- when he was a freshman, and the guy goes, watch for Michael Paddock. He goes, if that dude can stay healthy, watch out, but he, and then he said, but Chad, Chad said, but he couldn't, you know? And then when you look at him in this game against Michigan and he's getting hit and he goes, he's and he's a tough, and... yeah, he's a tough dude. He played through, looks like some kind of rib injury. You know, his lineman fell on that foot that has the brace yeah. on it. But yeah. he said, that's the thing. It's still got a brace on it. He's still got a brace. He doesn't ditch the brace after early in the year. He still doesn't look great as a runner. Then sure. what he did, is he too beat up? Is he Carson Strong, but not maybe as <laughs> exaggerated as Carson Strong yeah. in that level? And you look at him and go, I don't know. Like It just seems like this is someone that still looks like he's gotten beaten to the point that is he going to be able to overcome that to become a good right. pro? Because he's a talent, but is he is he going to be able to overcome that? And so I guess... You know, the first part of the question is this. I mean, like, I remember watching Trent Edwards. I was a big Trent Edwards fan, and I brought him up to Chad. I was like, that's an exactly good comparison. Baller who played behind no offensive line, facing the Pete Carroll USC teams, you know, and having his linemen getting in verbal arguments while he's getting sacked for the 10th time. Um, And then he comes to Buffalo, and he shows some promise, and then Adrian Wilson sacks him and knocks him out and he was never the same yeah. is so the first question is do you think Penix has, is more in that Carson Strong category or what degree do you put that in and second is he in danger or already at that point of being a, a strong or even a maybe a, a car or a Trent Edwards or someone who is in danger of being like their game's just not the same because they can't physically do what they used to be able to do early on, even yeah. if they're smarter. Yeah, those are great questions. I think really, what I see a guy like Michael Penix, the thing is, he's going to have to change with his injuries, right? I think that's that's super tough. A quarterback is you can see it during the national championship of, of how he moves when he's off platform, like how he moves when, when things are altered in the pocket. Um, it's like he's almost not skittish, but like he's ex- he's expecting it, but it's like a step too slow, right? Like he knows it's coming, but he can't put his foot in the ground and move a half a step to the left to evade the you know evade the free rush, right? Something like that. And I think that's the tough thing is when you have two two significant injuries and more on top, of that, it's a lot harder to change from like a movement perspective that becomes much more difficult the older you get, yeah. right? And he's an older prospect, 24 years old. So a kid like him, the biggest benefit would be sitting behind the right? I think he's going to be drafted in the late first round, early second. But he would benefit from sitting behind the Um, Because I think he's, to me, he's a, very much like a Geno Smith, a, a, a left-handed Geno. Um, and if um, you remember, you know, coming out of West Virginia, sure. he could freaking sling it. Yep. And like great he had a, movement in the pocket. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. He had a cannon attached to his right arm. Um, but then, you know, age. He had to change a lot. And this version of Gino is much better than Kyle Gino, but way less flashy. Yes. Right? Makes the right decision, makes the right play. He's a coach on the field, right? And that's the difference. I think that is going to be to be the Michael Penix arc and trajectory if he wants to have sustained success as an NFL quarterback is that mold. Um, I think he can, but I, I think sitting behind a veteran and really learning the finer piece of the game, because really a guy like Penix, you have to come to the NFL, learn, and have to be your version of perfect to have success. He has to He has to have that, jo- that Jordan love plan so that he can have yes. a few years to because when you watch Jordan Love at Utah State you're like that's a wild child that's yes. like Caleb Williams like mm-hmm. turned up to the max like in the worst possible sure. way and at times and then there's moments where you watch it and go how the hell did you throw a ball like that that is a, that is the biggest thing of beauty I've ever seen and yeah. then but then you see three plays in a row where you go um, you wouldn't last in the UFL if you did those three plays yeah, in a row. No, you, you know, so, sure. so when you watched him like that and see, then you watch him, you know, this year, and you're like, okay, it ain't perfect yet, but it's it's so much better. Like he doesn't, he didn't have to go through what Will Levis is going through right now, or you know, or Bryce Young, you know, is going through right now. He, you know. Love looked like a veteran quarterback who he had did. some flaws, who may struggle with certain things, but it wasn't everything. It was just one or two things that were significant, but not overwhelming. And that's where Penix needs to be to take the field. Because if he's going through all those other things, like you said, and he's got to worry about the the physical part of the game, Ooh, yeah, that that mm-hmm. can be rough for him. That that can be really, really difficult if that's the case. But yeah, I, I'd love to see him behind a veteran. I think that'd be great. Um, I think he needs some time. I think he needs some time because a guy like him, like I said, like if your physical abilities are already going to be out on a decline, your mental, emotional and you're just purely your cognitive skill set has to be at the highest level for you to have success. Yeah. Right. And it, it, you know, it goes back to like every time a player gets injured, the mind has to become that much stronger than the body. Yeah. That's how you. That's how you see longevity. You mentioned Trevor Gore a lot. Him, and that is a big piece of it, right? And that's why I think a guy like Nick Chubb's gonna come back next year. And do really well because that's going to be a big, bigger piece of his game. He's going to be one step back, and that's kind of what has to happen for guys like Michael Penix, who do have you know significant injury history. Is you're able to come back and and have a higher level um, cognitive skill set, and some guys don't, right? Some guys come back and and you can't come back from that. I think emotion is a big toll, and I think it, it's a big ask, but. If you can, I think it pays dividends for some of those guys. Yeah, I mean, when Larry Coker, the former Miami coach who recruited at Oklahoma State and recruited and coached Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas, said Mm -hmm. Frank Gore was the best running back prospect out of high school I ever saw, and you know who I recruited and had on my teams at Oklahoma State, Mm -hmm. Um, and then suffers two ACL injuries. I always joke that Frank Gore – was actually NFL's version of Achilles, except his mama <laughs> yeah. basically grabbed him by the back of his knees to dip him into the river sticks, as opposed yeah. to like by his ankles. Um, so and somehow got his somehow got his feet in there too. So, but I mean, uh, you, you know, that thing with Gore is so that's such a good point. Is that yeah, you're gonna have to you. There's compensatory factors when you scout players. And I think that's how I always term that is that like if they don't have certain physical traits, then they have to have other physical traits and mental processing traits that compensate for what they lack. And if they have that enough in enough degree, they can be exceptional in the sense of maybe not exceptionally awesome, but they can be exceptional enough to be good enough to play in the league. Like Devin Singletary is a compensatory player's 
he's he's the walking he's the the picture in the dictionary of football of a compensatory talent you know in that regard so yeah i love that for him so have you ever seen a player before we end this this segment have you ever seen a player who you know gets the crap beat out of them and sees start seeing ghosts and then like they overcome it to become good prospects because I can only think of one and I was still too young to necessarily say for sure it happened that way. Um, actually, maybe two I can think of that way. And they both had a lot of time on the bench as quarterbacks before they got a chance to to come in and show that they weren't strung out anymore. What did I I'm racking my brain. I can't remember what a quarterback that did it at such a level where, you know, you're pro bowl. Like there's guys who've been like mid-level, you know, mid-level NFL starters to high-level NFL. I think Ryan Tannehill comes to mind as one of those. Yeah. Who becomes like a, you know, like a mid-tier NFL starter who, you know, you can win a playoff game. Yeah. Right. Um, Derek Carr. But I think, you know, you saw Derek Carr in the injury of his, his rookie year. He was, I mean, he was playing at, he was that, he was CJ Stroud, essentially, if you remember. Yeah. He was that good as a rookie. Like, he was, yeah. he was at a poor pace, gets hurt, and then Carr's never been the same, in my opinion. Um, but it's hard, I quarterback it's rarely happens yeah i mean the only i can think of three and i don't even know if they're reliable because again i i was too young first one is the story of jim plunkett so you, you know yeah. in the sense that he was you know top prospect gets beaten up gets the crap kicked out of him after being rookie of the year in for the patriots and then ends up on the bench for the pay for the raiders for all those years and then it has a magical season, you know, a couple magical seasons. Fine. The one that I think I'm right about because I was really a someone, I was young and still young, but enough to have a decent memory that's fairly reliable. Mm -hmm. And that would be Steve Young. Because Steve yeah. Young was, Steve Young in Tampa was a mess, an absolute mess, and didn't have his feet tied to, to routes because he was in offenses that didn't maybe require that as much. And... He talks about a lot from his own standpoint that sitting behind Joe Montana and Bill Walsh's offense forced him to become um, less of a playground backyard quarterback and more of a technician in a lot of ways. And once he tied all that together, it really came to the fore and everything slowed down for him. So I think he's reliable. The other one is Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, uh, you know, because I mean, I still think of like Steelers fans and Three Rivers yeah. hanging his image in effigy, literally with a noose, like in the stadium in the seventies. That's crazy, and, and, you know, and him being benched multiple times and just like being really just a mess, and then yeah. it all kind of coming together for him over years, but if we can only name three and maybe only one of those may be reliable, that gives you your answer about, you know, right. these guys need to be protected early. And I don't, and I think For it, sure. it comes down to a point we say over and over again, which is, or like I, I like to find is intermittent playing time because once they start to get into that trouble and they're out in the deep end and they start to struggle swimming, you need to get them out of the water right then and there so that they're not afraid to go back into the deep water. You, you yeah. And you got to give them time. And th that's where I think if there's a, if there's a team out there that there are some teams out there this year that need to learn that lesson, because they're going to be, especially the bears because they're drafting their draft might likely drafting again. We'll see. I, I hope, I kind of hope not, but I I don't know. We'll see where it we'll, we'll see where yeah, it goes. I yeah, I think there's been a, I don't I don't know what's gonna happen, but I think the signs point to Fields coming back. I think I I, I like the idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you're Ryan Poles, right? If you know, if, I think Kevin Warren is gonna 
he if the, if it goes one more year and this is not a playoff team, everybody's fired. Yeah, everybody's gone. And, and I, that's tough. So it's I admire. To... I kind of admire polls for saying he wasn't my guy because I came in in the middle of this, but I'm going to make him my guy. That's a kind of a ballsy move. It's a bold statement. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to kind of sit by. You have to, you have to kind of sit by. It's just really interesting because if you if you think of it like this, if you have Justin Fields, you have DJ Moore, you have the rapport of, of those two guys. What makes your team better building off what you have, which is a good end of the year? The Bears ended with not an yes. awful record, yeah. but just not great weapons besides DJ Moore, right? Yeah. Um, Make tweaks to your offense. Yeah, 100%. Get, get a good young offensive mind in there. Yes. Um, but I think if they were going to go the Caleb Williams direction, they would just got to yeah. screw it. Like, yeah. we're just going to overhaul it. We're just going to get – we're, Here we're we go gonna, again. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna go talk to Detroit and, and see what we can, you know. Yeah. Pay jobs whatever we we need to pay. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's gonna be very much so. Yeah. i Justin Fields show. Yeah. I'm rooting for Justin Fields because he got a raw deal early, and if he's gonna stick with it, and he wants to stay, and they want him, they let him stay, and they try and make things work with him in the way where they're all in instead of like trying to make him be something he's not. Um, I'm, I'm rooting for the kid, you know, so we'll see. But um, with that in mind, you know, we've got a couple of, let's finish up with a couple of wide receivers here. We've got, let's start with uh, Keon Coleman. Okay. So Keon Coleman early in the year, LSU, huge game transfers from Michigan to FSU blows it up at LSU, see some games where he's hurdling people. Everybody's all excited about him. Then, you know, of course, the public eye starts watching some of the tape a little bit closer, and they start going, well, he's he doesn't seem that fast. He's not fast. He's not, he seems stiff. I don't know. He seems like a stiff guy. And people start talking about him in that realm. They're like, maybe he's just overrated, you know. And now it's kind of roller coastered back to where it's like, People are taking a closer look at him and going, maybe we, maybe all that athletic stuff that the public's saying has been a little bit over, you know, maybe they're overstating the bad about his game as opposed to a good. I don't know. I've watched him, I uh, enough to think that the athletic ability, the Noxon's athletic ability, are overstated and 100%. and and in a yeah. major, honestly in a fairly major way. Um, yeah. So if you ask me, he's a top five wide receiver prospect in this class, and it's For a sure. good class. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I, I, so here goes. I think he's actually extremely athletic. Um, he's one of the more athletic receivers in this class. <laughs> yes. But, but. He's not fast. Like, like some of the other ones we've seen in, in years kind of past, it's not the best of things. Yeah. But he can, if he develops correctly, I think he's a Pro Bowl, yep. which is, I think that's the ceiling for him. Um, but like Trayvon Burks, Harris Marshall Jr., there's Quentin Johnston. There are these guys, right, who are so athletically talented that their actual, the, the craftsmanship part of the game never kept up that athleticism. And you just get a like tertiary option in the NFL offense, right? Which is what Trevor Burks is trending towards, which is Quinn Chris, Johnson potentially. Chris Conley, Uber athlete. Chris Conley. Yep. It, it's hard to make yourself a craftsman tactician. And I'd say one that did that was, you know, go back to Michigan, Nico Collins. Yeah. Look what he's done. Right, he's become a really good technical receiver. And obviously, CJ Stroud is definitely helping lock that. But Keon Coleman's kind of in the that in the same athletic realm of yes. makes the freaky plays. But can he win with timing, precision? You know, be decisive when he needs to be. Those are the things you have question marks on. I think after the first three receivers in this class, you know, with Neighbors, Harrison, and Doomsday, those three guys, I think it's wide open. 
think Franklin's a first-round talent. I think, you know, there's a couple other guys. I think Adani Mitchell, right? I think he's a first-round talent, too. You know, you have other really interesting guys. But I think, again, like in years past, those middle-round guys are going to be the ones I think that steal the show. And we'll talk about this probably at length later shows, but Matt McConkey, Malik Worley, guys like that, I think will fit into the NFL offense right away and have a good role. Yeah. Um, a guy like, you know, Keon Coleman, I think he'll have to, you have to wait a little bit, yeah. I think, to see that the potential, you know, the star potential from a guy. The, the catch point skills are borderline otherworldly at, yep. at times. Um, the rebounding ability when it's on and he's focused on what he's supposed to do is as good as anybody you'll watch. Um, when um, I like what I've seen as a route runner thus far, um, mm -hmm. I've seen good bend to be able to drop his weight mm -hmm. into hard breaks and come back to the ball. He gets... He does that very well. He can tell, he can do some things with his stem work that's good. Um, and I see, what I see in him though is because he's not unbelievably fast, for, he wins underneath and gets a lot of separation on underneath routes. Mm -hmm. What you don't see is that he's playing in an offense where you know the quarterback's not making those types of progression plays with their feet tied to it. Now, if he's in a West Coast offense, and he's breaking back to the ball the way he is, he's going to get a lot of anticipatory throws that are going to come his way, and he's going to do very well. And I think that he has that potential to be a high-volume kind of possession-plus receiver who, you know, who who is better underneath than you expect. But if he ends up in an offense where there's not a lot of feet tied to the routes type mm -hmm. of stuff going on, he could be a big miss, you know, in terms of unlocking. Yeah. He's a more of a boom bust guy who doesn't have those skills unlocked in his game and winds up being pegged as your outside role player. Exactly. And that's what I'm concerned about is I'm concerned about him kind of getting Cortland Sutton. Yep. Away. Yes. And that's the tough thing is Cortland Sutton, really good at the catch point, one of the best in the NFL. But you kind of get pigeonholed into an out, you know, outside positioning when you can do more. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of what I think of him still a dang good player, right? But like, you know, he could be a pro bowler, but he's relegated to a, you know, a number two option role, right? Yeah. Um, in my opinion. But I think that, you know, that's I think the the issue with a guy like Coleman is, you know, you're hoping he doesn't get it. So that's the thing. In the middle of this, the middle of the first, the uh, end of the first round would be, I think, stacked with three, four rounds. That have good ability, but we're going to have to kind of wait and see. I think there's three receivers in the top 15 this year, well, potentially. But after that, it's going to be really interesting to see what teams want to do. And one of those players is Anaya Smith, the Texas A&M Wide yeah. receiver slash maybe slash running back who, you know, had a really good start to what looked like it was going to be a nice draft season for him last year. And then he gets hurt. Watching his tape yesterday again, revisiting that and getting through with him. I was pleasantly surprised by a lot of things. And because he's an efficient runner, um, especially open field, he can be masterful with what he does. He has very dynamic movement, but he does it efficiently. Um, yeah. He is, he is strong. He can, he can push off ball linebackers after they wrap him. He keeps his feet and can get pushed. He can break some tackles. And then when I watch the routes, like there's a couple things like, when you talk about fear of Coleman getting pigeonholed, the same thing could happen with Smith, where it's like he's going to get pigeonholed as this gadget player and never leaves it, and it's going to be limited routes because you're going to you can see him in the middle of the field with these like pivot and and whip routes where he really does well dropping his weight and then stop go type of movement that can get open. 
But I also see him doing fairly well against off coverage in the vertical game. And I heard people talk about drops. And when I say I heard people, I just hear, you know, I'll, I'll post my evaluations, like little clips of my evaluations on Twitter. And occasionally I'll see somebody respond and go, but the drops. And then I'm like looking at eight games and, of his and I'm going, the drops I see are pretty, you know, can be explained pretty well and they're not egregious and they're actually tough plays. And I see him catching the ball pretty darn well and doing it against contact and doing it right. where he's always catching. Well, he's frequently catching the ball at the earliest window, which is a really good sign. Doesn't leave his feet unnecessarily, tracks yes. the ball well. All those things you want to see from good receivers. And I'm thinking, this guy's pretty darn good. Like, I'm I'm kind, I'm impressed with him. And then I heard somebody else say this, and I thought, that's interesting. He's really just another Kadarius Tony, And he said it, and then he added right down to the drops. And I'm going, well, Kadarius Tony doesn't use good technique with his hands oftentimes when he doesn't drops the ball. Period. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Kind of <laughs> when, he, when he moves, we've talked about this, that he's, he's so dynamic, but he's so inefficient as a mover that it's like it, he almost gets in his own way because he's kind of moving circles around himself, overthinking stuff. Whereas when I watch Smith, he's not nearly as dynamic of an athlete, but he doesn't run out of his comfort zone and put pressure and stress on his body to make changes of direction. And he can make very right. dynamic changes, just maybe not on the level of Tony, but I look at him and I go, okay, he's not as athletic as Tony. Maybe, maybe uh, we'll see. Probably not, but he's less boom bust, more technically sound and more efficient. And so right. if he can, he's one of those guys I look at and go, I could see, I could see a team label him or him early and he's just stuck in that groove or yeah. he, or he winds up in a place where they don't label him and we go, Ooh, wait a minute. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting. So that cause when I watched, it's funny when I watched a and two years ago, he was the second best running back in that back. Yes. The body chain. And then they also had Isaiah Spillett who was highly touted by the community. Right. Yeah. And you, you know he's an NFL back. He's in you know he's in Los Angeles right now, but he's a talented kid. Good at good on kick return too. Really good in the open field. Just makes great decisions. Is also pretty dang dynamic. Um, the thing that's tough about guys like him, and you're kind of right with the Kadarius Tony pigeonhole. It's like the Lavisca Chenault syndrome. Yeah. And it's super tough because, like, look at, like, Visca's, like, rookie year when he was getting used as a money back. He was getting used at receiver. He had a, actually a surprisingly good rookie year. I, people probably kind of remember that. Um, but never got to grow from that because, you know, after his rookie season, new coaching staff just fully shifted his role, um, was fairly non-existent. Um, but that's kind of a role I would like to see. Aeneas Smith in terms of I would like to see LaVisca Chanel plus because I think he can offer you more in the intermediate areas of the receiver. But you similar production as a rusher in his extension of your run game, which I think is also very important. Um, like Danny Woodhead. Shoes. Yeah. And that's my cat. That's kind of that's my. Kind of, I love that actually. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I, I, that, that, kind of, that kind of tracks too with how. See with, with how he plays the game, like for some reason, the one that pops into my head, Justin Forsett. I don't know why. I but get that. I get it. I, I yeah, think that's like I don't know because as as a runner, I think he's just I think he's much better than people. I think he is. Um, and I'm he's probably going to be a, a day. I think he's going to be like day two or day like a day three guy. Yeah, but I think he's going to make a roster and can make some noise. Um, because I think he's going to offer you, you know, a multi-dimensional skill set, yeah. um, and hopefully, you know, he doesn't kind of, hopefully, he doesn't get like Lynn Bowden in a way yeah. too. Um, but I think he's a player that can, he can earn some touches and, and carve out a carve out, carve out a role early on. I'll say this: I like all the players you mentioned, but when I watch him, and I remember scouting some of those players, I look at uh, Anaya Smith, and I'm thinking. He might be my sleeper in this class. 
I love that. He he might very well, because I was surprised at how good he was at the catch point and in the places where he, he, like, it's not like, he wasn't getting gimmies. I'll put it to you that way. He wasn't like, to me, Wandale Robinson is a, a good example of a gadget player who he'd make some wild plays to an extent, but they were, the wild plays are plays you expect every wide receiver, even a running back to make, like back shoulder fades. Sure. You know, when you're throwing balls to him up the seam where you're crossing in front of your defensive back because your quarterback leads you there and you have to cross behind the defensive back and lay fully out for the ball that's at your shoe tops and height and you catch those with great technique or you're getting nailed across the middle on, on plays that are like leading you into that type of contact and your hands are the way they need to be. You turn your body away the way you're supposed to. You're like, you know, you, you turn your body before you hit the ground. So you're not falling on the ball, all these little fine points that you got to do as a receiver. And he just doesn't play after play. And I'm looking at this guy and going, I remember him as a running back, you know? So yeah, that's the, that's the unique part is like, he's, I don't know. He's, he's a really interesting player because he, you watch him play and you're like, he's better than I remember being every time you watch him. Yeah. And it's, it's like this, it's like this. Okay. We had Tavon Austin. So many people were on Tavon Austin and then it was Dexter McCluster. And everybody was oh, on no. Dexter McCluster. Yeah. Danny Woodhead sure. was this afterthought that the Jets got rid of out of Shatteron State, and then the Bill, oh. and then New England made him something, and then he looked good. Supposedly, New England made him something. New England brought him in and used him. He played well. He played well with the Chargers. Played well when he was healthy with the Ravens. And you're like, oh, that guy was pretty darn awesome. But you forget about him a little bit. And then right. you're looking at all these guys. You know the some of the guys that they bring in are gadgets like that. Wandale, Lynn Bum, yep. Bowden, all that. And and you're like, eh, this thing's played out. So when you see Anias Smith and you think, oh, he's in that mold, I think it's easy to kind of write the dude. I'm not saying you are, but it's easy for the public to write him off. Sure. And I, I kind of thought, okay, well, let's see. And then you're watching him going, I think – I think, yeah, I think he's going to get written off and then he's going to come into a camp and they're going to go, we had no idea what we had. He's going to blow it up. Oh, yeah. I think so, too. You're also going to get the injury discount with him, too. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's... it's a deep class. Yes. So I think that's going to be the really interesting part of it, too. Like, I think he, he's definitely a, he's a diamond in the rough. Because if it wasn't for injury, I think he's a day two. Yeah. I absolutely do. Well, well listen, you know, we have a lot that we're going to have fun talking about this draft season as you can see um excuse me you can find you know angelo at angelo underscore fantasy on twitter you know check out his work he does fantastic work rookie scouting portfolio and when his work comes available for subscription you know we'll make sure that we tout that as much as we can you know on Absolutely. here so when that when that's when that starts happening, but tell people a little bit about that now so they can get their minds wrapped around it ahead of time, so they kind of make little plans about what the, the yeah they need, no, to, I, they need to get that, this on their uh, their itinerary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, gosh, but it's like this year four. It's been a lot of fun doing it. Um, biggest things I do in the off season is look at why, right? I do what's called the why series, um, and I look at why is this player going to be successful and what can hinder them from success, right? So pretty simply, like, what's the superpower? What's the kryptonite? And what's that gray area in between where they might kind of sit? Um, and also, too, like, from the standpoint of, like, schematically, like, where these guys fit, what schemes. Um, and also, too, looking at their scheme fit after they get drafted, right? And this year, the, my, my biggest one was take down. Take down them, Puka Nakua. Those yeah. are two that I, I, I dove into, um, and that you and I talked about as well last year uh, of how they can have success, right? How and then why? What do these guys do to help them have immediate success in the NFL? Especially being 
you know, day two guys, right? They yeah. early day three guys, some of them. Um, you gotta kinda make immediate impact to stick around. So from that standpoint, analyzing and looking at it from a deeper lens, hey, what type of movers are these guys? Can these guys stick? If they do stick, what's the impact? And that's a you know a, a fun thing I do, and I, I really do enjoy doing it. Um, do it every year, and then look at the dynasty rankings. Um, I'm a big fan of football nerd myself. They'll look at the dynasty rankings, how these guys fit in the current dynasty landscape, um, and then you know kind of go from there, and then just have fun with it. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. So definitely go check out Angelo Fantasy. You know you gotta you gotta check out the work that he does, and. Uh, you know, rookie scouting portfolio, it's entering its 19th year. You get pre-draft and post-draft. You know, you mentioned Puka, Puka Nakua, Jaden Reed in the post-draft were two of my um, biggest value plays in my post-draft out of my top 36 players that were ranked. I do a tiered ranking of over 200 players um, with rankings and tiers, and they were in my second tier. Two biggest values out of the top two tiers listed basically from – where I ranked them versus what their average draft position was in rookie drafts and said, these are guys you can get at a value. Um, that worked out pretty well. You know, obviously, you know, do really in-depth scouting reports on these players, work on them all year. You can find it at mountwaldman.com. Um, we were, thanks to you guys, you know, we were able to donate another $5,000 to Darkness to Light this past year and you know darkness to light d2l.org is an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children through training programs with you know schools government businesses individuals you name it and teaching them not only how to spot potential grooming habits and behaviors and understanding the dynamics of such a you know a horrific you know crime and trauma on children but also when it unfortunately and inevitably does happen um, based on the dynamics of what's been in play in our society how to handle it when it's reported so that you don't compound the trauma for the children which is almost more important as weird as that sounds and sounds kind of backwards but really um, when it does happen compounding that you know being able to avoid compounding that trauma can actually give a lot of children a fighting chance to be able to work through that and have very healthy adult lives in ways that uh that you know a lot of people don't realize can be overcome you know with with the care that's provided so ddl.org you can find it there we've donated over sixty five thousand dollars since um 2012 um so very proud of that we'll be you know donating a portion of, of sales again this year so, you know, you can go to mattwaldman.com, get yourself a good draft guide and some fantasy work, and you're helping out a good cause too. And, you know, it's always a good, you know, it's always a good thing that I have, you know, Brandon Angelo aiding my cause here, you know, joining me for us, us, you know, partnering on this podcast, doing the work that we do. I know you guys have enjoyed it, and it's been fun to hear the feedback that we get. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you, and we're going to keep on doing it. Have a good week.